Entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who seek excellence. Bringing the business classroom to you. It's the Business Builders Show on the Business Builders Media Network. Here's Marty Wolf. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Business Builders Show. I'm your host, Marty Wolf. You know, one of the things we are proudest of in doing podcasts for several years is the sound quality of each interview. Unfortunately, we had some technical challenges with my mic uh, on our last interview. Therefore, I don't sound the best. However, our guest on this edition of the Business Builder Show, and that guest is Dan Pink, he sounds great. So thank you for your understanding and get ready to learn from Daniel H. Pink. And he is the author of When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. This is a book that I wanted to read and no one else had written it. Uh, Here's the thing. So I'm talking to you right now from my home office, which is the garage behind my house in Washington, D.C. And I would come into this office every day and do my work. And at a certain point, I realized that it's like, well, when should I do my writing? What what should I do my writing first thing? Should I do it last? Should I do it in the middle of the day? Um, When should I have do interviews? When should I take a break? When should I have a meeting? Uh, And when should I start a project? When should I abandon a project that's not working? And I realized I was making these decisions in a very sloppy way, which I found frustrating. And so I said, there's got to be some guidance out there about how to make these decisions more intelligently. I looked around, the guidance wasn't there. And um, that surprised me, actually. Then that also got me curious because the books that you very generously mentioned are, are books that take a look at large bodies of science, particularly in the social sciences, to say, what do we know from the science that we can apply to our lives? And I said, I wonder if there's any research on this question of timing. And it turned out there was a huge amount of research on this question of timing, uh, but it was splattered all over the place and no one had really pulled it all together in a systematic and useful way. So I said, okay, I'm going to take on that thankless task. Yeah, you mentioned, uh, we both mentioned the word scientific and research. And I've I've always um, commented on the time and effort you put into along with your team and the research um, that you put into your work. So that'll come out. It has come out in the book. It'll come out in this interview. So as you started to indicate, you start the book out by talking about the hidden pattern of everyday life, the Mm -hmm. hidden pattern of everyday life. Some of the things you mentioned are mood swings, uh, stock swings, times that may be better for critical thinking versus creativity. So Tell me more about the hidden pattern of everyday life. Sure. Well, here's what we know. Um, In general, people move through the day in three stages. There is a peak, there is a trough, there's a recovery. Most of us, about 80% of us, move through the day in that order. A peak early in the day, a trough in the middle of the day, a recovery later in the day. About 20% of us is more complicated. And this is a function of what is called a chronotype. A chronotype is just... It's, it's a term from the field of chronobiology that indicates what is your natural propensity? Do you naturally wake up early and go to sleep early? Do you naturally wake up late and go to sleep late? And mm-hmm. what we know is about 15% of us are very strong morning people, larks. About 20% of us are very strong evening people, owls. 
meaning they get up late, go to sleep late. And then about 80, about two thirds of us are kind of in the middle, but we lean more toward the lark. And so very, a, a simple way to think about it is, are you an owl or not an owl? So if you're, if you're the 80% was not an owl, peak trough recovery, morning, afternoon, uh, late afternoon and evening. Uh, if you're a, if you're an owl, it's much more complicated. You hit your peak much, much, much later in the day. And each of those three periods, the peak, the trough, the recovery, it suggests that there are certain kinds of work we do better in those time slots. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. So what about stock swings? <laughs> that that kind of got my attention. Um, talk to me about that that you write. Yeah, yeah. there's a really remarkable piece of research out of NYU uh, where they did the following. They, uh, they looked at the transcripts uh, so, so, so one technique that some researchers use is, and it actually goes back to linguistics, is, um, is sort of ginormous text analysis. So what you can do, there's these rel- relatively simple programs where you can put a, a huge amount of written text into this program and, the, and, and the, the program can analyze it for certain kinds of questions. Um, um, you know, so so if you were to put, say, the, the works of a novelist in there, you could say, how often does this, you know, you know, and you could take all the works of that novelist. Let's say you took all the works of Stephen King, put them into this program. It could tell you almost instantly how often does he use passive tense? How often does he use active tense? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the ratio of adverb? You know, all kinds of, of stuff that would otherwise have taken armies of English PhD students to circle and count and tabulate. Uh, and one of the things that this program is do very well is measure the emotional level of the words that are used. Do the words convey a positive sentiment or a negative sentiment? And these researchers at NYU use this program and they analyze the transcripts of public company earnings calls. Hmm. Uh, um, thousands of them. I mean, tw- uh, I think that the, the exact number uh, was 26,000. Just think about that. 26,000 public company earnings calls. And they were they were they were just doing some analysis, and they said, "I wonder if people's if if um, the mood of these calls, as represented by the words that are used, changes over the course of the day." And to their surprise, they found that it did that um, that there was a difference in time of day uh, in sentiment based on time of day. Uh, what was so in, so? Then you might say, "Well, it might it must be that companies with bad news." report one time a day and companies with good news report another time a day. They control for that. And what they found is that afternoon calls uh, were systematically more negative um, uh, in their sentiment than uh, morning calls. And that that actually had an effect on the stock price, uh, irrespective of the fundamentals. Um, And I think what's interesting about that, I I think, you know, without getting bogged down in the details of that study, you know, know, what we know from this research on the hidden pattern of the day is, 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 let's go up a level of how we construe this is this, our brain power doesn't remain constant over the course of a day. It changes. It changes in material ways. And unfortunately, the way we approach our work sometimes is that we don't take that into account. We just say, well, should I have that meeting at two or at five? Well, it depends on who's available and da, da, da. Uh, Do the work, you know, in the morning, should I do in the afternoon? Well, it kind of depends on whether I have time. And and that's actually not very good decision making. uh, um, uh, because our, our, our performance changes over the course of a day. And this is just one of many, many studies showing that people perform differently at different times of day. And I think what's remarkable about this, and I think the reason, Marty, that you mentioned it, is that, you know, if you talk about, I mean, you know, your audience are, are, are small and medium-sized businesses and entrepreneurs. These are not those kinds of companies. These are publicly held companies. Yeah. People doing these calls are CEOs and CFOs of publicly held companies. They are reasonably competent people. 
Um, they are very, very well prepared for these calls. They, yeah. uh, and they have an enormous amount at stake because as your listeners know, you know, the, these, these earnings calls can send the price up or down um, almost instantly. And so here you have these highly incentivized, very accomplished people who have a lot at stake and still the hidden pattern of the day emerges and actually changes um, how they, how they talk about things. And so, so the real, I think the real uh, takeaway for business owners is, is, is what we were talking about before, which is that our brain power changes over the course of a day. So figure, so let's talk about, you know, so, so, so understand that reckon with it and be intentional about how you apportion your day and how you schedule what you do. Yeah. So I'm an early person. Right. And, and so I'm kind of like, uh, okay. And, and I've always been an early person, but talk to me about the distinction that you make in it as different times of day. Um, I guess between I'll call it critical thinking versus creativity. Okay. And, yeah. And there's sure. different times, right? So talk yeah. to me about that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a great point. And, and because again, let's go back to what we know about this. Our brain power changes over the course of the day. Uh, it changes in material ways. Uh, that is the difference between the daily high point and the daily low point can be very significant. Uh, and as you're saying, Marty, um, the best time to do something depends it on what you're doing. So let's go mm -hmm. back to our three stages of the day. Peak, mm -hmm. off, recovery. With you as an early person, with me as a early-ish person, I test in the middle, but leaning toward the early. Um, we tend to have our peak early in the day. And here's what that means. Here's what the peak means. The most important attribute of that peak period is that that's when we are highest in vigilance. What does vigilance mean? Vigilance means you're able to bat away distractions. So during the peak, uh, which again, for 80% of us is, is the more is early in the day for, for all you owls listening out there, it's, you know, it's, it could be midnight, but for 80% of us it's early in the day. That's when we're most vigilant. So that's when we should be doing, as you say, Marty, analytic work. That's work that requires heads down, focus and attention writing a report, analyzing data, carefully going over the steps of a strategy. This is why I actually reconfigured my own schedule so that I could just clear the decks in for, as a writer, I clear the decks and do my writing in the morning. Because as, as you know, anytime, I mean, as anybody who writes knows, the moment you sit down to write, at that exact moment, the entire universe begins conspiring for ways to distract you. So you have to do your work at your moment of least distractibility, which is the peak, which for many of us is early now. So, so that's analytic thinking, heads down, focus kinds of thinking. Now we're going to skip over this early to early to mid afternoon period, the trough, well, which is a, it can be a perilous time of day and let's go for 80% of us late in the afternoon and early evening. Something very interesting happens there. Our mood is up. But our vigilance is down. So let me say that again so we can kind of picture that or, or contemplate it. Our mood is up, but our vigilance is down. That combination ends up being very useful for um, certain kinds of creative, iterative kinds of work, right? So let's, I'll give you an example of this. Let's talk mm -hmm. about, let's think about brainstorming. You and I have been, and all of your listeners have been in brainstorming sessions where people were hyper vigilant. Mm -hmm. You throw out an idea, it's a little wobbly, and people say, that's a terrible idea, that'll never work, or you just crushing mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. That's not an effective brainstorming session. With a brainstorming session, you want things to be iterative, you want things to be looser. And so there's some good evidence showing that we um, 
do better on what social psychologists call, learning psychologists call insight tasks. Um, those of us who have 80% of us do better on those kinds of tasks late in the afternoon and in the early evening. And so, um, and, and now for, for owls, it's, it's, it's more complicated, but, 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 um, but for 80% of us, we're better on those kinds of iterative tasks late in the day. So, so for me, what I try to do is, is I do my heads down work in the morning and then I do my more iterative stuff late in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Now, let, let me take one more beat and talk about that middle period of the day or early to mid, early to mid afternoon, early to mid afternoon. Uh, that's a terrible time of day in general. And, <laughs> you know, there's 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 actually a lot of evidence of 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 um, uh, deteriorating performance across many, many realms. We talked about that corporate performance and the and the stock swing. Mm-hmm. There is um, there's a, a mountain of evidence on on how what a bad idea it is to go to the hospital in the afternoon. Don't right. go to the hospital in the afternoon if you can avoid it. Um, and so what we should be doing then is we should be doing our administrative work during that period. And so we have a set of design principles for 80% of us, which is this. Analytic work in the peak early. Mm-hmm. Administrative work, routine emails, et cetera, in, the, in that trough period, early to mid-afternoon. And insight work in the recovery period, late, late afternoon to early evening. Owls, as I say, a lot more complicated, but you owls out there, you're hit your peak of vigilance late. So do your analytic work late. And if you're employing owls out there, don't make them come to 8 a.m. staff meetings. Boy, that last thing you said was so important. <laughs> so, so important. So I hope you're not on your trough now. Uh, no, it's- but you know what? Well, <laughs> no, but Marty, seriously, that's, but that's actually a really good point. Yeah. You know? so, so, so because of circumstance, we had to do this. We had to do this interview. Um, at a what I would consider is a suboptimal time, um, and but the, the fact that I knew that allowed me to design around it. So before this interview, I went. It's it's. I live in Washington D.C. The day that we're talking, it's actually a grim, gloomy day here in Washington. I mean, and I and then and then there's the weather. No, um, there's a. Um, <laughs> No, it's a, it's a yeah. very dark, overcast day here in Washington. But I took a short walk outside, and I actually had a cup of coffee in advance of this because I knew it was a suboptimal time. And so I'm going to steer around that um, because of that. I would not have done that if yeah. I didn't know about this. I wouldn't, wouldn't know about this research. And so, if you had interviewed me, you know, a couple of years ago before I did this research, it would have been an even worse interview than I'm giving. Right <laughs> I think I think you're hitting your stride. I think that's great. So speaking of, of those kinds of things, um, you did surprise me with uh, talking about naps and and taking breaks and and the power of vigilance. So um, and, and so that's what you're really talking about is just knowing your where your peaks and your troughs are and that kind of thing and then and preparing for it and then nature walks and drinking coffee. But tell me that let's be clear on, on most of us think well I'm going to have an interview in five minutes. Uh, I'll drink a cup of coffee and it'll get me all fired up. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, not really. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, right. Well, explain. I mean, they're, they're different. They're different. They're different ways to do. They're different ways to do that. It's like like the question. Like 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 one question becomes: How fired up do you want to be in an interview? Depends uh, on what time of day your interview is. If yeah. your interview is at ten in the morning, I'm not sure I advise a cup of coffee ahead of time. If you're if you're a if you're uh, if I'm already a peak, 
Yeah, because you're probably yeah. you're 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 probably okay, and so you don't want to be you don't want to be you don't want to be overwired. Right. Uh, I mean, what we know also is on, on the sort of another part of timing is is that it takes about twenty twenty five minutes for uh, caffeine to get into your bloodstream. So if I had a so so this is why I had, and I'm not I'm not I'm I'm totally I'm dead serious about this. Is like I like we had an interview at one thirty. Um, my time, which I guess is your time too. And, yes. and I, and I had a cup of coffee at one ten, knowing yeah. that, um, you know, I wanted to have, that it was a tip, that was some optimal sure. time of day and that I needed a little bit of, yeah. of, um, performance enhancing drugs. There you go. Oh, there you go. Uh, we both read the book, um, uh, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting her name, Konakova. Maria Konnikova, yeah. and, and uh, fascinating, and and she talked about poker players uh, taking caffeine pills, and, yeah. and that kind of thing. So not to get off track, but it just made me think of it. I'm going to switch entirely on you, but first of all, I want to tell everybody who we're speaking with. It is Daniel H. Pink. We're speaking about his book, When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. You can find him at danpink.com. That's correct, right, Dan? Danpink.com? You got it. And you can see a whole lot of stuff on his website. But one of the things that I want to strongly suggest is that you subscribe to his news, uh, newsletter like I have done for years. And so go to danpink.com. Okay, here's one I'm going to switch. Let's talk about restorative breaks for school children and what you wrote about in terms of restorative breaks for school children. And maybe I'm going to throw you a curveball here and say, well, hmm, things are a little different now with school children and mm. breaks and COVID-19 and that kind of stuff. So so what did you write about? How important is for restorative breaks for school children? Yeah, and it's not only it's not it, it, it's right. Breaks are important for school children. And there's some very there's some fascinating evidence of that. There's a, an important study that came out of Denmark uh, showing that kids who uh, took standardized tests in the afternoon scored considerably worse than kids who took standardized tests in the morning, uh, which is alarming. Um, uh, yeah. If we're going to make decisions about the, the, an individual kid's education path based on standardized test scores, and those test scores could have changed if they had been randomly assigned to a different time of day. Uh, but one of the things that they found once the afternoon test scores, they, they detected that the afternoon test scores were significantly lower, is that if they gave kids a snack and a 20 to 30 minute break to run around on the playground before they took the test, the scores actually went up. Um, and so, and so one of the things that we know from a whole, again, another very rich trove of research is that at a broad level, breaks are more important than we realize. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, I think that, that we have this very, um, I mean, and listen, I'm, I'm a sinner on this as well. Like I, I always believe that breaks, were for, wimps, breaks <laughs> were for wimps, breaks were for wimps, breaks for, or let me put it this way. Breaks were for amateurs. I believe that amateurs <laughs> took breaks and yeah. professionals didn't. And right. that is 180 degrees wrong. Yes. Uh, what the research tells us is that breaks are part of our performance. They're not a deviation from performance. Breaks are mm -hmm. essential. And that if you actually look at elite performers, whether in music, whether in sports and other kinds of realms, it's actually the professionals who take breaks and the amateurs who don't take breaks. Mm -hmm. uh, so breaks are part of our performance, not a deviation from it. And so once again, as with configuring our day and doing the right work at the right time, what's really essential is that we are intentional 
about taking breaks. Mm-hmm. We should be taking more breaks and we should be taking certain kinds of breaks. And to your point, Marty, I think that's especially true in COVID when people are have 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 their 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 environment, their workplace architecture, mm-hmm. uh, relationships and whatnot is less congenial to breaks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in our case, you know, we tend to work by ourselves in front of our computer. And and so we're it's up to us to take the break as opposed to a typical workplace. If you are there and you're with your team, it's time to go for a coffee break. You get up from your desk and you leave. Exactly. I think the discipline, see if you agree, the discipline is more for people like us. And now in even COVID, because if people are doing remote work and they're grinding it out, um, they should read this book and understand how important walking walking away, uh, walking, taking a walk, uh, taking a break is so important. Am I accurate there, Dan? You are, but I want to ch- I want to make one tweak though. Um, I don't want to rely. I don't want people to rely on discipline. If I had to rely uh, on discipline, I wouldn't get anywhere. Got uh, it. What, what I like to rely on are systems. And what I do, and just to be concrete about this, is that because again. I just, I, I just, I, you know, this is like the, the Marty Wolf con, con, confession booth here. Like, you know, I have sinned and I, I, I was not a break taker. And, and even now um, I don't naturally take breaks. So again, so I don't want to rely on my discipline to take breaks. What I want to do is I want to schedule them. Mm-hmm, I want to mm-hmm. schedule them. I want to establish a system that forces me to take breaks. And so yeah. one way to do that is, you know, you can start small is that I have on my phone, I have a uh, two alarms set in the afternoon mm-hmm. for my breaks. Yep. And what I like to do during those those breaks is get up out of my desk and where possible, actually take a walk outside for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. Right. And that is in many cases the best thing I've done that day for my productivity even though old me a couple of years ago would have said, what are you doing wasting your time going out for a walk? Yeah, you wimp, me, grind the, it out. <laughs> right? the, me who knows, the me who knows the evidence. Again, I mean, I think there's a big point here is that too often it we is. make decisions based on our, based on our intuitions because my intuition then was like, oh, breaks are, breaks are a bad deal. But now, but, but instead of making decisions based on intuition, let's make them based on evidence. And the evidence says, Take take a few breaks. You will do better overall when you take breaks. But again, build it into a system. And and you know, my recommendation for your listeners would be, you know, like like this week, like as you're listening to Marty's show, um, set you know, schedule one 15 minute afternoon break every day for the coming week. Put it in your calendar and and treat it with the sanctity with which you would treat, say, a meeting. So with that lesson learned, I want to point out that in the book, uh, Dan has added uh, Time Hacker's Handbook after each chapter. So that lesson that Dan just shared, after each, it's after each chapter, correct, Dan? And, and there's, there's several pages that how-tos and what-to-dos and suggestions, sure. right? I, I love that part of it because it well, gave us practical steps, right? Well, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to share, yeah. I'm trying to give people a new way to think about things. So so be more intentional about time and look at the various ways that, that time and timing affect what you do, how you do it, how you feel about what you do. But, yeah. but, but I also want to give people, I also want people to be able to tap that science and tap that evidence to make different decisions and do different things in their life that allow them to work smarter and live better. 
So let's talk about starting right, starting again, and starting together. And what's the research or what do you want to share with us about those items of starting right, starting again, and starting together? I found this extraordinarily fascinating. Yeah, well, what the again, so we can think about timing based on the unit of the day, and that's very important. But timing also has a, a another dimension to it, which is that uh, our lives are a series of episodes, and episodes have beginnings, episodes have middles, episodes have ends. And so both beginnings, middles, and ends all have a an effect on our behavior, on our perceptions, on our decision-making. And once again, if we're aware of the effect that these stages have on us, we can do a little bit better. And so beginnings are beginnings are are, are, are quite interesting. One of the things that I'm concerned about now, uh, in part as, a, as the father of, of, of three college-age kids, is the research from Lisa Kahn, was at Yale, now at the University of Rochester, showing that the the initial labor market conditions, so, so the, essentially the unemployment rate, mm-hmm. graduate from college has a massive effect on their earnings mm-hmm. 20 years later. Yeah. Um, and, Shocking, so, huh? and so yeah. right now you have in the United States, pretty high unemployment and, and students coming out of colleges and universities um, uh, into a, a somewhat grim job market. And not only is that, are they going to struggle at the outset, but that's, they're going to bear the imprint of that struggle perhaps for, a decade or two. Mm. Yeah, S- scary stuff. And again, 20 years later, this has a, a long, long, long term yeah. effect. But does it help us to start together? T- talk to me about starting together. What do you mean by that? Well, what it means is what it means is is recognizing that. Let's 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 just let's just stick with this example, and then and then we can expand it. So. So if you have a kid who's graduating from college and they enter a, a grim job market and that puts a break on their lifetime earnings power, that's not their fault. I mean, it's their fault if they're not working hard, you know, but, but, mm-hmm. it, but it's not their. And so what we need is we need um, in some ways a collective solution. Uh, mm-hmm. So maybe there are things like above a certain unemployment, if you enter the workforce and the unemployment rate is above a certain level, Maybe that triggers some student loan mm-hmm. forgiveness or something mm-hmm. like that in the way that we would do with a, nat- with a, with a natural disaster. Mm-hmm. The other thing more broadly as a policy measure is we also know that you know, the, the initial starting point of any trajectory is enormously important. So, so kids who don't have proper nutrition and, and, and proper care uh, and opportunities for uh, mental stimulation be- between the ages of zero and three again, start mm-hmm. with a deficit. And so mm-hmm. um, every kid deserves every kid deserves a, a robust, healthy start. And so we're all going to be better off if we do that. And so thinking of, in this case, policy issues in, in an episodic way about the importance of beginnings can actually help us do a lot of good for a lot of people. Yeah, you mentioned that. Um... When we have a national disaster, a uh, national or a local disaster, there's a hurricane, there's uh, yeah. COVID-19, there's something, uh, we tend to respond to that very quickly. Right. Um, right? Um, because, we know it's, because we know it's nobody's fault and that it hurts people and that there's a moral obligation to, there's, there's a moral obligation for to do, to, 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 to act in a way that is just, but embedded in there, there's an economic imperative that when we act in that just way, Actually, the economy is better off. Mm-hmm. 
Right. So we should feel that we should feel, and this is where I guess while we're talking about this, is that these college students or anybody in this kind of uh, uh, situation uh, starting together means that we do look at it as a as a country, as a group, as a as a team of people. So whether it's uh, it's a reboot or it's some adjustments that look at it the same way, um, I, I would that's what I took from it. Correct. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I have so much, but uh, let's see here. Uh, I'm going to ask you this simple question because it, uh, there's a lot behind this. Uh, what are nine enders? The number nine enders. What are they, and what's the significance? Oh. <laughs> so, uh, so this is pretty interesting. This is a really fun piece of research uh, having to do with marathon running. And uh, so Adam Alter at NYU and Hal Hirschfield at UCLA looked at what are the ages at which people are most likely to run their first marathon? And what they discovered is it's ages 29, 39, 49, and 59. Hmm, that's kind of peculiar. Why is that? Well, these folks are nine enders. And the reason is, is that they're coming to the end of a decade. And there's, again, this is part of a broader body of research showing that endings have a big effect on our behavior. But one of the things that endings do is that when we when we see the end of something, we kick a little bit harder. And so what you had is you had, I mean, it's, it's crazy when you think about it. Uh, um, 49-year-olds are three times as likely to run a first marathon as 50-year-olds. It makes no physiological <laughs> no. sense, right? No, no sense at all, right. Yeah, uh, and yet that what's going on is that people see the end of a decade and they actually are prompted to move. Yeah, fascinating. What about the teams that are one point behind at halftime? Talk to me about that. I love that. Talk to me about that. Teams that are one, just one point behind at halftime. What, what's the study? What's the research say about that? So this, is, so this is some research on midpoints. Again, midpoints have a dual effect. Sometimes they bring us down. Other times they fire us up. This is the work of Jonah Berger at Penn and Devin Pope at Chicago. What they did is they uh, looked at a... I don't remember the exact number, but uh, but in the tens of thousands, a uh, large sample of, of NBA, National Basketball Association games. And um, because sometimes midpoints are hard to detect. You know, mm-hmm. Midpoints have an effect, but midpoints aren't always visible. However, in the game of basketball, midpoints mm-hmm. are visible. There's a like, literally a horn goes off like you can hear mm-hmm. it. You know, it's halftime. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what they did is they looked at uh, to what extent does the halftime score predict the final score of a game? And what they discovered is that it predicts it reasonably well that teams ahead at halftime are more likely to win the game. Not a big surprise. I mean, that, like that's not to me, that's not like you don't need complicated math. I mean, you might need complicated math to prove that, but you don't need complicated mathematical thinking to understand that. Right. Because oh, they have more points in the games half over. Okay. That makes sense that they would be more likely to win, except there's an exception to that rule, as you said, Marty, and those are teams that are down by one point teams that are trailing by one point at halftime are more likely to win than teams that are ahead by one point. That being in the NBA, being down by one at halftime is as advantageous as being up by two. And, and this is part of some other research showing that, um, that, that midpoints can have a galvanizing effect, that when people feel like in a project or anything, that at the midpoint they're slightly behind, they really start bringing it. They really mm-hmm. start bringing it in that, in mm-hmm. that second half. Um, and so... Yeah. So once again, I mean, I think it's, I mean, as a sports fan, I think it's interesting to look to the world of sports for yeah. lessons on how to do things in our life and our business. And I think both of the studies that you mentioned 
um, the nine enders in marathons and the halftime in basketball are very useful to 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 business owners. Um, I would absolutely. I would absolutely think so. Slightly behind in my mind is kind of important. <laughs> slightly slightly behind. behind is really important. You're right, and that's exactly <laughs> what the research shows. When 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 people are when people are really behind at at the at the midpoint, they can give up. Yeah, exactly. Um, for the sake of time, I'm going to move quick, uh, but I, I, hopefully you've got another few minutes because uh, a couple other things I want to talk about. So I, I would call this, uh, I, I want you to tell us the story about lunch delivery in Mumbai. And I guess I would put this under the category of the power of group synchrony. So maybe we should describe synchrony first. I'm not sure, but this has to do with lunches being delivered in Mumbai and I'm calling it the power of group synchrony. Talk to me about that. Sure. So what? Um, so so I went in. One of the stories I tell in the book is a story of these uh, guys in in Mumbai, India. And and here's how it works. Uh, so in the business culture, this is pre-pandemic. In the business culture of Mumbai, uh, the office culture there, uh, there isn't kind of as it is here, people eating out and grabbing food and so forth. Uh, people actually prefer. There's a tradition of people preferring home-cooked meals, uh, which is difficult um, because people often live very far away from where they work and they have to leave early in the morning. Uh, that's the bad news. Uh, the good news is that many middle-class Indian families, whether they're living in multi-generational households or even some, they live in multi-generational households or they sometimes have uh, domestic help, even middle-class people. And um, and so what happens is, is that somebody will prepare. So the, the person will leave for the office in downtown Mumbai early in the morning. And then a couple hours later, somebody in that household will start preparing lunch for that person. Mm-hmm. Now, that sounds cool, except that how does the lunch go from the kitchen in suburban Mumbai to the office building? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there is this group of, of, of guys, and it's, it's 99% guys called Dabawalas, who will deliver these lunches. They, delay, they pick them up at people's apartments. They, they, they board a train. They then deliver them to the desk. Then they pick up the empties and 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 deliver the empties back to the households. Uh, they do this uh, six days a week, uh, hundreds of thousands of times, and they do it without any errors. Their their, their error rate is so low that um, UPS has gone to study them, uh, FedEx has gone to study them, and they do this without any technology. Uh, no technology, except yep. for a a mar- magic marker marking system, coding system on the on the containers. But they don't have GPS. It's not like Uber, where there's a little, little dot and it shows you when your lunch is arriving. They don't use they don't use GPS. They don't use UPC scanners. Uh, they do it because they are so exquisitely synchronized with each other. And yeah. so another aspect of timing is how groups how people synchronize with other people, which is a big part of who we are and how we get stuff done. Yeah, that was a great story and so so pertinent to the business world. Of course, the whole book is filled with great stories. Uh, so we're running out of time. Um, we are out of time. I've, um, I, I, I love the book. I love Dan Pink's work. Again, it's Daniel H. Pink. His title of this book we've been talking about is When? The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. I'm sure you've gotten a lot of lessons from this. You need to get the book. He has the, um, the hacker's page at the end could give you kind of instructions to kind of implement some of these things. Uh, and maybe I shouldn't end this way, but I'm going to do it anyhow, Dan, so hopefully you'll, you'll be okay. The last <laughs> sentence in the book says this. <laughs> this is what you say. The last yeah. sentence in the book, it says, 
I used to believe that timing was everything. Now I believe that everything is timing. Powerful close. Uh, we are closing, but is there anything you'd like to remind us about, Dan, from the book, or any comments you'd like to make uh, about the book, or anything else for that matter? No, I think if there's a big lesson from the book, it's to is to be intentional about your life. Uh, don't let things happen to you, but but be intentional and affirmative about about what you do and how you do it. So I stayed on the book because I think it's so important. But in kind of in passing, but the uh, last thing real quick is Dan also wrote a book, one of my favorites of all time, is uh, Daniel H. book is uh, To Sell is Human, The Surprising Truth About Moving Others. Tell me quickly about this master class that you're offering, Dan. Oh, yeah. So I'm offering a, a class on uh, on selling and persuasion on the platform Masterclass, masterclass.com, which is this really wonderful education platform where all kinds of Really, really cool, interesting people offer uh, video classes. They're usually like 15, 14, 15 classes uh, with workbooks and things like that. But some really, really amazing people. Um, uh, so you'll have, you know, Spike Lee teaching filmmaking and Serena Williams teaching tennis. Uh, but also um, uh, Chris Voss, a hostage negotiator, talking about negotiation. There's some really good, uh, a lot of really good chefs, a lot of really good writers. So, um, so I'm proud to be part of that platform and offering uh, this class. Uh, I think we have 16, 16 separate lessons on on how to persuade and influence uh, effectively. It's uh, fantastic. I think you can just subscribe. Yep, just go to um, Masterclass. I think if you say and Dan Pink, you'll find it. So, But go to master masterclass.com. You will find Dan Pink. I strongly recommend that too. So again, go to his website, danpink.com. Absolutely subscribe to his uh to his newsletter. It's great. Dan, thank you so much for taking time to be with us on the Business Builder Show. Marty, what a pleasure being with you. Thank you for listening to the Business Builders Show on the Business Builders Media Network. Find all our shows and many other great podcasts at businessbuildersmedia.com. That's businessbuildersmedia.com.